0: The shortest distance between the United Kingdom and mainland Europe is only 33.3 kilometers, from South Forland to Cap Griné, close to Calais. By train it only takes 122 minutes to travel from Brussels to London. But how close are we really? In the aftermath of the Brexit, I embark on a journey with Rhys Edmonds to find out. I am your host David Loder, and this is 33.3 km. We are here at the fourth episode of 33.3 kilometres, and after a deep dive into politics last episode, this time we're going to take it a little bit more easy. We're going to dive into the arts, into the higher forms of catharsis, highbrow escapism, not uh, fully unneeded in these times, into theatre. Let's start easy. What's your favourite play?
1: Wow. My favourite play is by a man whom Aristotle considered to be the greatest playwright of all time. And that's the Athenian classical playwright Sophocles, um, and the play is called Antigone, and it's about a girl whose brother um, has been killed, fighting against her own city, fighting against Thebes, and um, the, the brother, the enemy brother, is lying unburied on the battlefield, and her uncle, who is the king of the city, and um, prohibits the burial of dead enemies, and she nonetheless insists that her brother must be given due burial. And that's the the crisis in the play.
0: And then what is it that attracts you so much about this this play? Is it a crisis you have experienced yourself for a time?
1: <laughs> have I ever had to bury my dead brother? Not, not yet, no. I've never had to bury my dead um, podcast co-mate either. <laughs> Maybe the time will come. <laughs> a promising thought. <laughs> oh, can I just say some other thing? Because you mentioned um, catharsis at the beginning. That, I don't know if people know this, but that's actually a, a Greek word and that it was coined by Aristotle. Because many of Aristotle's contemporaries, including his, um, his teacher and his inspiration, the philosopher Plato, I've actually got a, um, a sculpture of, people can't see this, but I've actually got a sculpture of a bust of Plato on the mantelpiece um, behind me. So I do admire Plato very much. But Plato was very wrong about poetry and drama because Plato disdained it. And he considered that the dramatists, the tragedians and the poets, they lied. They presented falsities and they presented them as truth. And this brought out the worst in audiences. And Aristotle disagreed. Aristotle thought that um, theatre, that tragedy, had an important civic role to play. And he called that role a cathartic one. And this is from the, um, the Greek word kathairo, which means to, to purify, sometimes even to burn, like a purifying flame. And um, the idea was that watching drama, watching theatre, would flush out your emotions, like pity, anger, so on, and it would purify the audience by so doing.
0: So basically, what, what we today use football tournaments, video games, and other uh, means to.
1: Yeah, no, I think it can have that effect. They can, certainly, they can, certainly, football tournaments can engage um, the emotions. When um, in the Euro finals of the Euro 2020 recently, when um, Sancho and Rashford and the other chap, Saka, missed their penalties, um, that was certainly quite an emotional, indeed traumatic moment for the nation. And
0: although maybe one could say that the theatre is the superior form of catharsis as it doesn't lead to riots or uh, just after, at least not that there are no cases that I'm I'm aware of.
1: Not generally, no. no.
0: But it is true that, that this idea uh, of catharsis, of experiencing your emotions in a way that is, if you if you will, safe, anger, sadness, yeah. to be able to experience them in a controlled way in a room and even yes. enjoy them is, is, is of course... A, a, a much better way than other means to let out uh, these emotions.
1: Yes, and Aristotle was quite invested in the idea that the experience was controlled and it was channeled towards one particular event. Um, He considered this to be important. And of course, this is a rule that's often disobeyed by modern um, playwrights. But Aristotle insisted that tragedy had to be about one event. And so in the case of Antigone, it's about Antigone not being able to bury her brother. And it had to happen on one day. Um, had to happen between sunrise and sunset, and all the action had to happen off stage, so you wouldn't get distracted, and so you could just purely engage your emotions on the one issue, often disobeyed by by (laughs) future playwrights.
0: I think nowadays uh, disobeyed in every form of of media and and, and culture. Violated. The one example of modern cinema, if you want, or series, Mm -hmm. where they do this is Game of Thrones, but nowadays the only reason the action happens off the screen is in the first season, of big productions where they simply don't have the money yet uh, to create the battlefields uh, big battles uh, but that is the only reason i i, I doubt that aristotle was uh, consulted.
1: consulted no well it's it's nice to know that game of thrones did obey the aristotelian unities even if that was purely for physical in the, in the first season yeah in the first season right
0: once they became successful this uh, this was yeah. uh, thrown aside as uh, so often with the Greek philosophers. Well, let me first tell you my favorite theater play, and I'm, I'm trying to also shed a bit light on, on modern theater and new ways of yes. modern theater, interactive theater, that uh, I will not win if we try to square off on knowledge of classic theater. Mm-hmm. Um, my, One of my favorite theater plays that I went to was in London, actually, from a theater production company that's called Punch Drunk, which does very modern interactive theater pieces. In this case, the, the play was called The Drowned Man, uh, which is loosely based on, I have to say the name correctly, but I think it's a Vojtech a play on a soldier that is slowly descending into madness. And they have this play playing out two times with different characters in the same building. Now they, at the beginning of the play, they let in 600 members of the audience and they all come in at different times. There are 40 theater players and you are walking through the space And you carve out your own path through this play. So you can choose which actors you follow, which places you go. So the story is different from everyone who experiences it. And you walk for three hours in an old abandoned post office, four different floors. Uh, and there create your own story and it was an amazing experience it was funnily enough probably the worst date i ever had but the nicest theater experience because we were forced to enter the post office at different floors and didn't find each other till the end of the theater play
1: you took different paths you and your date. precisely was this voluntary or did you well you thought you were were forced so you were let
0: out at different floors you were you were wearing masks masks so that you could recognize the difference between actors who weren't wearing white masks and members of the audience but which also made it impossible to recognize each other in the dark gloomy okay. rooms that we walked so yeah i would not i would not recommend it for for any date but this way of theater where you're actively involved in the play if you want where you choose uh, your own route the kind of immersion was was new for me and was i think uh, amazing wow. very good but let's let's take a, a few steps back from uh, especially modern theater uh, and, and talk a bit about the history of theatre.
1: Yes. Well, like all the best things, it began in ancient Greece. And um, the word tragedy actually comes from the... So we're doing a lot of ancient Greek etymology today, but this will be the last one. The word of tragedy actually comes from the ancient Greek word tragos, which means um, goat. And there are a few theories about why this could be. Well, what have goats got to do with theatre? I mean, they very rarely appear on the modern stage, for instance. Nietzsche thought it was the, the, the actors dressed as goats. Some people thought it was because um, a goat was a, a prize that was given in early theatrical events. Um, an alternative would be that there was a sacrifice of a goat um, involved. But what we do know, goats notwithstanding, is that it was, the, the tradition was particularly um, centred around the god Dionysus, who was the god of wine and entertainment and revelry and one of my favourite um, ancient Greek gods. And um, the theatrical tradition first started as choral processions to the god Dionysus, but around 500 BC it became formalised and it became formalised around a theatrical competition, which took place in Athens around March or April of every year. And you'd have three different tragedians, three different playwrights competing against each other. Um, and they'd all write a trilogy of plays, trilogy of tragedies. Um, and they write, they write a satyr play, a satyr play as well, which was this knockabout farce with, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of rape as far as we're aware. But it was considered a knockabout farce. Yeah, and one tragedy in would win the prize. And something which I think is quite amusing is that obviously we have very few of these tragedies still remaining, and um, some of the tragedies that we have, for instance, Medea, which is I think one of the greatest Greek plays about this this queen killing her children, actually won third prize. So you can out of three, this is third prize out of three. So you can see that some of the prizes, that some of the, the plays that we most value today, um, actually were not particularly liked by audiences at the time. And the other thing is they had a purpose built theatre, the Theatre of Dionysus. Which can seat 17,000 spectators, which is extraordinary, which you can see in Athens today on the Acropolis because it's been excavated. Yeah.
0: So, moving to the, the role that it plays today in society, society, I think we cannot escape, even though the, the podcast tries to focus on the similarities and differences mm. of the UK and mainland Europe. I think that we, we necessarily have to focus a little bit more on the UK today. Uh, why is theatre so big in the UK? I remember coming there as a student, living there, and For me, it was a big surprise, the amount of plays that were running, the easiness and the the, the last minute opportunities to visit all sorts of different theatres. Shakespeare that you basically see on every uh, corner and and, and Shakespeare's Globe that is standing proud on the side of the Thames. Why is it that compared to other countries, theatre takes such a central role in British life?
1: It's quite interesting, isn't it? I think we were one of the first, I don't say this for certain, but I think we were one of the first countries... To establish purpose built theatres really since ancient Greece. And we did that in about 1500 during the 16th century. We were a big pioneer in developing theatrical art form. Before that, they didn't really have that much. They had um, these travelling theatre troupes, these mummers, who would go round from town to town and they'd perform these sort of folk tales. They must have, I think they had similar traditions in other European countries too. And they also had, had these medieval mystery plays where they performed particular scenes from religious scripture. In general, there wasn't much. And then suddenly, in the 16th century, people started building these theatres, which were you know, based on ancient Greek and Roman um, models. And suddenly there was this great inflorescence of cultural enthusiasm where they started churning out all these plays. And that wasn't really comparable in other European countries, where art was much more focused on the court tradition. Which is, of course, very, very um, excellent in its, in its own right, but it was, a, it was a different entity to what we had here. So theatre really took off in the 16th century, and it never really stopped, except very briefly during the Civil War period when they closed them. But then, in the Restoration, immediately after the English Civil War, it started again, and it's carried on ever since. And we developed this theatre district in London's West End, and there were just an extraordinary number of, of theatres there. I think there were 45. There are it's 45 theatres in the West yeah. End and they're constantly pumping out plays and musicals all the time, which um, people really, really love. And some of them been going for years. So yeah.
0: That's the fascinating part, because when I compare it, of course, we have in the Netherlands, for example, we have theatre. Yeah. A lot of uh, more modern theatre is yeah. coming up now. Uh, we only have a few classical theatres right. throughout the, the country. Yeah. And even if you look at, at the plays that, are, that became more famous, which are always strangely focused on the, the war. Or not always, but there oh, are really? multiple. Okay. Uh, yeah, the 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 one that was selected as the best Dutch yeah. language theater by the by a big group of theater goers is is called To War, a ten hour play nonetheless, uh, which you might imagine I therefore have not yet wow. uh, seen. But also interesting, once there is a big production, it stays and it stays for a long time. The biggest musical we have had also on 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 the the Second World War called Soldier of Orange. Yeah has now been running for 11 years, 3.1 million visitors, which is one sixth of the country <laughs> has seen it. Uh, and it's still going strong, but it also shows that, this, that there is a whole different dynamic uh, because there's not that much new coming out. It's, it, it's oh. much more difficult to, to say uh, every second week, let's go to, to a new play, which in England, I thought you could, uh, you can do.
1: Yeah, I think that's partly the result of the, the national theater. Which is which I know you're very familiar with, but some of our listeners perhaps might not be um, this is a, a st- heavily state subsidized theater company in london, and it it's based in this great theater on the south bank called the national theatre and I think because it's heavily state subsidized it occasionally has a, has a few hits for instance, it had this um, play called War Horse in the 2000s which in there, yes. everyone in the country went to see and it made an ext- it made thirty million pounds an extraordinary amount of money in Steven Spielberg bought the the film rights and made it into a film. So occasionally they have these hits which can support them. But in general, they rely on state subsidy. And this cushion allows them to challenge audiences and to do plays which might not necessarily be popular rather than just do the old classics. Whereas the West End theatres, by contrast, much as I love them, some of them are a bit like the Dutch theatres you mentioned. Some of them have been churning out basically the same play for decades. There's a play called The Mousetrap, by Agatha Christie, which, uh, you, yeah, people might have heard of. I mean, it's, it's very lovely. I've seen it. Um, it's um, a little sort of country house drama. People basically in a room, there's a murder. A policeman comes and it's solved in an hour and a half. And um, this play has been going, I looked this up recently, this play has been going since 1952. And it's the longest running play in history. And that still packs theatres all the time. And people like to go to that. They like to go to Cinderella or Matilda. And there's a theatre in London called the Sondheim Theatre which is a, a new name. And before that, it was called the Queen's Theatre. And it's changed its name, but it hasn't changed the play it's been playing. It's been playing the play longer than it's had this current name. And the play, of course, is Les Miserables. It's a musical Les Miserables, which is extraordinarily popular and, and very populist and very fun. So it's not all cutting-edge drama. Um, but the point is, the national is. And I think we're very lucky to have that and we, sh- we should cherish it because that enables us to do things which are a bit of a risk.
0: Which is, in, in uh, if you look in the Netherlands, we do that a lot, but that is really limited to small theater groups uh, right. with small budgets in small rooms. I remember, um, I do like very much these these new modern yeah. and uh, original types of theater. The the strangest one I went, which led to the lasting mm. impression, was called Shrimp Tales.
1: Shrimp Tales.
0: Where they had made, in a small theater room, they had small maquette yeah. full of small shrimps that were like taxidermism, were put on little sticks and there was a big screen on the back and people would go with a tiny camera through these different scenes set up with shrimps going from shrimps going into labor to a club full of shrimps and film it with a small camera projected on a large screen which made it look like you were in, a, in an enormous area where a play was being played out by a bunch of shrimps now this sounds weird and it was weird but very entertaining uh, and and afterwards we spoke with the people around us and, and they all said the same, that we didn't really know why we bought tickets for this but we were very happy we did. These kind of experimental opportunities I think are very good Are right there and, and I'm very jealous that um, the National Theatre and how they, they promote that. Let's uh, take uh, take one step back from the experimental theatre and go to the theatre plays that are always playing in London, will always be playing in London and, and we even visited one ourselves. The playwright that inspired my favorite story as a kid namely the lion king you know who ah I,
1: I do yes
0: the best interpretation in, yes. of hamlet if i can say yeah.
1: so the lion king is, is hamlet isn't it
0: it is hamlet it's it. Got an
1: uncle it's got a father it's got it hasn't got a son what more can you need it's almost it,
0: it's almost a, it's almost <laughs> a full copy <laughs> but let's talk a bit about uh, about shakespeare the man you yeah. said that in the 16th century, this theater uh, really started to live a life of its own in in, uh, London. And that, of course, is the same time when this very playwright started to write his his famous work. What can you tell him about the man? Why did he become so famous?
1: Yes, we don't know an an extraordinary deal about um, the man himself. But what we do know is he wasn't particularly posh. He wasn't particularly educated or well-born. He didn't go to university. We know that. Um, he wasn't from a titled or noble family. And he wasn't in the sort of continental court tradition. He, he made plays which ordinary people could watch. And um, they, he mainly played for this theatre in London, the Globe Theatre, which i have actually reconstructed. So you can see it. It's rather wonderful. And at the front of the Globe Theatre, there's this pit. And um, people, can sta- even today, can stand in the pit and watch the plays. In the 16th century, this would, these would have been ordinary people ordinary working class people chatting and gambling and buying snacks and eating and fighting. And they would have been, again, part of the audience of the play. So to some extent, he had to appeal to them too. So it was a popular art form from a, from a man from an ordinary background. Um, but you ask, what do we know about him? And um, we know where he lived. He lived in this town called Stratford-upon-Avon, which is not a great, not so far away actually from where I live. And we know that he went to school there. And we know that he didn't learn much Latin and Greek, supposedly. Um <laughs> We do, supposedly, but we do know he was certainly extraordinarily gifted. And we know that he um, married there. He married an older woman um, whom he pretty much abandoned. He, he, he left her there in the Chapman Avon to bring up his family. Um, and he went to London to make his fortune. And um, that's where he kept churning out his plays.
0: What makes his plays, if you look at the uh, uh, name of you? King Lear, yeah. uh, Merchant of Venice, we have Hamlet, the, the list is, is, is long. What makes these stories stand out? Because they've been reinterpreted and reused indefinitely, you could almost say. Was it revolutionary for the time, the story arcs that he used? Was it something that appealed to, uh, for example, the working class for a certain reason? How can we, how can we explain his, his rise to fame?
1: I think, although then, mo- I should say most of his stories actually aren't original. This is something a lot of people don't realise most of them are based on either classical plays or sort of italian renaissance stories so the ideas themselves the themes are not original but the way in which he he writes them is original and extraordinary and i think speaks to something quite profound about the human condition they're very decontextualized i think that i think that that's part of their appeal i mean many plays like i imagine the play you just mentioned the dutch play about the war probably makes a lot of sense in a Dutch context, in a culture that has just experienced the traumas of the Second World War, I would imagine. Whereas Shakespeare's plays don't. I mean, even the history plays are not particularly historically accurate. They don't particularly um, relate to the period in which they're set. They, people, the characters basically behave like they're in Shakespeare's day. I mean, he sets a tonne of plays in Italy, but um, he, he'd never been to Italy. His audience hadn't been to Italy. He knew very little about Italy, and they're not particularly Italian. They are really for, for anyone. And it should also be said that um, he was considered to be particularly important in his own time as well. It wasn't just like he was, he was an ordinary playwright whom we've suddenly excavated later. I mean, no, he was, he was the great playwright of his age. Um, it should definitely be admitted. And um, also, even in his own time, they were already being translated, adapted yeah, in, in different countries. And we know that Hamlet and Merchant of Venice were being performed in Germany, even in Shakespeare's own lifetime.
0: I was amazed with also the way that English people respect yes. uh, Shakespeare. I remember when we together as already a few years ago, were in Cambridge, and we went to a Shakespeare play, uh, which was uh, rudely interrupted by the the British weather conditions that uh, that terrorize you so often and in, instead of standing up and running away. I was looking in awe around me, where people were sitting in the in the rain, getting drenched, but standing their ground, watching their playwrights' play continue.
1: People love Shakespeare, and they like for some reason English people like sitting outside to watch Shakespeare as well. And perhaps that's because Shakespeare's own audience, or at least the ones in the pit, um, would have been outside. The pit, the pit was uncovered in in, in the Globe Theatre.
0: So it it is sort of doing poetic justice to the origin.
1: But you're right, we do, we do treat Shakespeare with this sense of holy awe. And that, interestingly, wasn't the case in um, Shakespeare's own time. The generation after Shakespeare, the generation of the, of the restoration period, the ones that reopened the theatres after they'd been closed during the, during the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell, they treated Shakespeare as a source of material, as a great writer, as an inspiration, but not necessarily as something to be performed and quoted verbatim. I mean, for instance, they radically changed the plots in many cases. I think this is extraordinary, but um, apparently some restoration playwright um, adapted King Lear, so it had a happy ending. And this and this performed for decades with this new ending. And it's actually only in the Victorian period that we develop this modern attitude to Shakespeare, where we take it all very seriously and we deliver every word as we think. And I put that in inverted commas, we think, because we don't really know, because there are different versions and folios and things. We think Shakespeare wrote them. So we, we try we try to do it as Shakespeare wrote, but that wasn't always the case. And I believe when you, you probably will know more about this than me, but often when you hear Shakespeare translated um, into different languages, they do it in the modern vernacular. So Shakespeare, when you hear it in Dutch or French or German, he feels um, strikingly modern um, in a way, obviously he doesn't to an English audience because um, his language is, of course, 17th and 16th century.
0: This is of course true, where I think that it's also legitimized in the sense that if you already have to change language, yeah, then your goal might be for the audience to best understand or to conceive of. So they could do it in old Dutch. I've never seen, I've been to to play from Shakespeare in, in, in Dutch, but this was modern Dutch. I can imagine they also do it in old Dutch, but the problem is that that would be the same as for me going to an Italian opera, yeah. uh, which can be a beautiful experience, but doesn't leave me with a strong sense of narrative mm-hmm. fulfillment. Um. So no, I, I, that will be it that will be modern, uh, uh, modern Dutch. Indeed.
1: It's interesting, these conventions because um. When we translate classical tragedy um, into English, and we often do that, we often you often can see Antigone or so on on the stage. Um, they do translate it into modern language, and it does often feel quite modern. Um, so we're happy to do it with these texts, but we're not happy to do that with Shakespeare. We tend to perform, in England. In England, we tend to perform it as as is, as the Bard wrote. Yeah. I did. I was in Twelfth Night, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, at school. So when you asked me what my favourite play was, I almost said Twelfth Night because I have a particular fondness for it. And um, I was Orsino, who is the, um, the love-lovelorn, rather confused, rather, in many ways rather pompous, Duke, who falls in love, ultimately, with his um, manservant, who's actually a woman, but she's a woman cross-dressing as a man. Of course, in Shakespeare's day, it would be a man cross-dressing as a woman cross-dressing as a man. But in our version, it's a, it's a woman cross-dressing as a man. Um, Shakespeare um, was not, was I think it was pretty clear to say, was not heterosexual, because he wrote... These um, lots and lots of, of love poems to a man, to a dark youth, and um, there are theories about who that might be. And I think that these ideas of gender bending and um, sort of non-heterosexual experiences being valid are, are quite are quite key to Shakespeare's work. Yeah, and that's that's definitely a theme in, in his in his drama.
0: Which is interesting because it shows again this this form of escapism that that theatre and the arts can bring. That on yeah. the on the stage you can be someone else, or you can tell a story that you might not be able to tell. Yes. Uh, outside or in your life
1: yeah it's a way of dealing with things that are quite hard to talk about in normal society
0: during my uh, my degree in political science we got an introduction to sociology and one of the theories that most made the most an impression on me is based on theater Uh, you might have heard of this from Goffman and it kind of ties into what you said uh, fiction is a way to escape some of the constraints uh, political constraints or, yeah. or, or otherwise well what he said is that you can look at social behavior through the lens of theater where you have a front st- everyone has a front stage and a backstage On the front stage you are acting you are basically adapting what you think what you say how you behave because people are looking at you because there's a societal norm uh, and where the backstage is where you can truly be yourself and these everyone carries these two persona, which I remember at that time really appealed to me as a as a way to look at the way we behave and the way we adapt to others. Theater is a, a form of entertainment, but theater is also something that we do in our everyday lives every day. Yeah, we play roles. We try to adapt to what we think people want to hmm. see or what people want to hear. Yeah, uh, and it and it's sometimes very difficult to distinguish or to really take apart this front stage and backstage behavior to when you're really alone, to think your own thoughts, to not be wearing a mask if you want.
1: I mean, uh, yes, so it it is telling that um, in classical Greece, is something I didn't mention, in classical Greece, actors wore masks and um, they wore sad ones, typically for tragedy, um, and they wore happy ones for comedy. So the Aristophanic thing with the phalluses and everything and all the knockabout fast, they wore a smiley mask. And um, these symbols, certainly in England, I think, actually globally, are associated with the theatre, these two masks, one happy and um, one sad.
0: Yeah, which was also why this theatre play I went to from Punch this interactive theatre, was so strange, because there, the participants were wearing the mask. Right. And the theatre players were not, which created a strange relationship between participants, because you were a participant, but you were also part of the play, which is inherent to, to one of those immersive and interactive theatres. And the interesting thing what that did is that the anonymity that the mask gave people made them act in ways that you would normally not act in a theatre. So some people would come very close up to the actors, uh, try to touch them, all these sort of things that you would never think of if you're sitting in an old theatre building, walk up the stage and start touching uh, one of the actors. But because of the combination of being part of the play and being anonymous... It changed also the behavior uh, of the of the spectators, which I found very interesting to see.
1: Oh, so almost you might say, um, because they were wearing a physical mask, they weren't wearing the metaphorical mask that they wear in their day to day life, where they have to act decorously. Yeah,
0: because they were wearing the mask, and we were in a dark kind yeah. of room, and you're outside of reality. They were they were in their backstage behavior, mm. you could say. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because of that, because of half of what made it so interesting to me, well, let's say one third was the actual play and the different plot lines you could follow. One was the interactions between the players and the actors, and one was the creeping realization that my date was absolutely ruined, yeah. uh, but altogether a very unique experience.
1: So I, sh- I should say there's um, a lot of, of course, of, of, of modern theatre uh, follows this genre called realism, um, where everything is meant to be, obviously is meant to be as real as possible. Um, but the alternative to that is what the Greeks did with their masks. And I think what um, that production did were the audience wearing masks, which is to make theatre seem very unreal, to make the experience take you out of yourself a bit and to make you reflect upon the nature of what's going on and the nature of illusion performance and to look at the consequences between that and your normal life and look at the role that you know illusion performance um theater plays in your own life and that's something Shakespeare is very interested in as well I mean he's he's a lot of of his plays play with the idea that you're watching a show you're watching a play so a lot of Shakespeare's plays for instance actually have a play within them um Hamlet you know focuses around a play the play's the thing and ra kill the kill the king you, you you know you're watching a play and the characters in in your play are themselves watching a play which is about killing a king which is what they're about to do yeah
0: it's very interesting how it, how it plays with that concept of mm. who are the who are the actors and who are the spectators and how you yeah. can can change that and also maybe creating a blank canvas because the masks I can imagine really help in projecting yourself as a spectator on that person by not having that person have very detailed facial characteristics or other things that make it, them look different from yourself. What, what I find interesting and which I've seen again and again that makes it for me a very different experience again than film is also the creativity of telling a story with limited means. So as you might remember, I think we went there together I'm, I'm amazed with how interwoven our theatre history is. Uh, we went to no exit from yes. Sartre yes. in Warsaw. One room one room, a bench and a few doors, and that's it. And they keep you entertained and they make you guessing and thinking for three hours. No Exit is about Sartre's idea of what hell is, being in a small space with people that are your opposites, people that you cannot stand. The famous phrase, hell is other people, is coined from, from that very play. I love that. The simplicity with which they can evoke such strong emotions is something that, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know any other art form that, that for me can do that.
1: There was a play I was in at university. Yet again, it was Shakespeare. I've only ever done Shakespeare, pretty much. I haven't really acted in any other plays. Um, they don't let me in otherwise. But um, it was As You Like It, which is a Shakespeare comedy. And I played two separate um, characters in the same play, the Duke and his brother. And they were never in the same scene together, thankfully. And they were in different scenes. But um, it wasn't like I was one duke, then I was the other duke. I mean, they, it was interspersed. And the way I did it was I took off my jumper and put a tweed jacket on. For, and a scarf, that was it, for one of the dukes. And for the other one, I didn't. And the audience was expected to guess the difference. And I think I was expected to convey that difference with my acting. But I should leave it to other people to <laughs> and tell me how that, that was. Um, I, th- I found it very difficult to do. Was this in the
0: Times of Reviews, Reese? Can I look up what, <laughs> how people reviewed this particular play? There is a
1: review, yes, in the Cambridge Student Press. I can send it to you. If you want.
0: Okay, we'll, we'll put that in the link to the episode so that, uh, that, that all the listeners can enjoy.
1: I was free-riding off much better actors who carried that play and who played the main parts. And I was just having a go at theatre while I was at university.
0: Can you recite your favourite verse from a play?
1: I can from? do that. I'm going to recite a um, speech from Shakespeare's play, Richard II, and it's delivered by um, a character called John of Gaunt, who's a very old man, very old um, aristocrat, uh, and he's dying, and he's lamenting um, the state of England, of his country. It's one of Shakespeare's history plays, and this is how it goes. This royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this precious pearl set in the silvery sea, which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this realm, this earth, this England. This nurse, this teeming womb of royal kings, feared for their breed and famous for their birth, renowned for their deeds as far from home, for Christian service and true chivalry, as for the sepulchre of rotten jewellery. For all the world's ransom, blessed Mary's son, this land of such dear souls, this dear, dear land, dear for its reputation through the world, is now leased off, I die pronouncing it, like to a tenement or pelting farm. England bound in by the triumphant sea whose rocky shore beats back the envious siege of watery Neptune is now bound by shame with inky blots and rotten parchment bonds that England which were wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of herself would that this scandal perish with my life how happy then were my ensuing death there you go
0: oh Thank you, Rhys. It's always good to end on a, on a positive note. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: much, much appreciated.
1: Finish on a song, and, as they say.
0: <laughs> and, that, and that was it. Well, I hope we have at least fired some uh, some people to go visit the, the theater more frequently, mm. reinvigorate, create a, a young, fresh wind in the, the, the audience of, of Theater Place. And uh, we're going to be back with a different topic next episode. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you. Goodbye.